Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing this morning. I uh, quoted Walt Kaiser last week when I, who said, every pastor should preach a topical sermon once a year and then repent. Well, we're doing actually a few in the month of January just to kind of systematize and, and uh, have a high-level view theologically of some issues. And this morning is no different. What we're going to do is look specifically at our church membership commitment from a slowing down biblical perspective. This was made, um, uh, it was made to me very uh, urgent a few weeks ago when at our Thursday morning men's training, which men, I would love to see you at 6 a.m. right here in the back of the worship center on, on, on uh, Thursday mornings. Um, someone said, you know, you say that at the end, I've never really taken the time to think through those, those commitments. And so uh, we as a staff just put our heads together and said, this is something we need to stop and slow down and look carefully at. So hopefully you have one of those sheets in your hand. And uh, uh, I say Brent in the back, if you, if you don't have one of those, would you just raise your hand and we can make sure that we get one of those to you. In order to set our mind in the right direction, just raise your hand and he'll be glad to, to find you. Right in the middle back there. Familiar territory, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has taken a retreat. He's moved from the north shore of Galilee and he's moved up into Caesarea Philippi to get the disciples away from the crowds. And he says, verse 13, came about when he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? What's the rumor mill? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah, but others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? Simon and Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, his confession, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That's an incredible covenant. A covenant is a promise. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church of Jesus Christ is his possession. The building of it is his prerogative. The power for it comes from him. Which leads us to ask a serious question about what does it mean to be a part of Christ's church? Another way of asking that is what, what does it mean to be a member of the church? We, we have a crisis in American evangelicalism and the crisis really is over church membership. There are some people who think it's not only unnecessary but unbiblical. There are some who think it's offensive and authoritarian. We'll say more about this later but I think that really comes out of just an American uh, disposition that we hate authority. We just don't like submitting ourselves to anyone for anything. Church, church membership in today's culture is a tough issue. And I've narrowed it down to what I think is the predominant reason. And it might surprise you. Why is church membership under threat? Why is church membership 
such a naughty issue? The answer is cars. Or you could say public transportation. Really the attitude behind the abilities that cars express. For most of church history, your choice of churches was limited by how far you could walk. And typically that was defined by a parish, P-A-R-I-S-H, don't say P-E-R-I-S-H, completely different word with a different meaning. Church parish, these were sections that were marked off by geography, by land, that until multiple denominations began to, uh, to pop up, were largely you went to church in your area, in your village, in your city, in your village. Well, horses and carriages extended your ambulatory range, but with a family that was still hard to do. Predominantly, most of church history was you went to church wherever you could walk until our generation. With the coming of cars, the distance that you can travel to attend a church opens up an almost limitless amount of church options that you can get to that would be within the walking time distance of what most people chose to or had to endure when they walked to church. I live six miles from Mission Road Bible Church and I pass 12 churches on the way. All within a few minutes drive all of them closer to my house than the one that we're in right now. The point is that if we're in a different place, that we are in a different place than New Testament believers who, who didn't have choices like we do on where they would go to church. Now, that's not a negative. Praise God that we can travel sometimes past Churches that don't preach the gospel, churches that don't believe the Bible, and go to one that does. That's not a negative at all. But it also brings in range that you have a choice. With rare exceptions, most of you drove, I know there may be some exceptions this morning, to church this morning. And with rare exceptions, most of you passed other churches on your way to where you're sitting. Why? Well, if you don't like a church today, all you need to do is drive easily to another one within a few minutes comparison. I think it's both a blessing and a curse. Again, those of us who, who live far farther than a walking distance from a Bible-believing church, I'm glad we have cars, aren't you? I'm glad that I didn't have to walk six miles this morning in the cold to Mission Road Bible Church. Hop in a car, get there in a reasonable time. The downside, though, is that if someone has an issue with a church or with people in the church, it's all too easy to pick up, get in your car, and instead of doing the hard thing and the biblical work of resolving the conflict and working things out together, you just drive to another church. Think about Paul who knew of a situation in Philippi where two women were having a difficult time getting along together. Remember their names? Yodia and Syntyche. He didn't say, well, maybe one of you should change churches. Philippians 4.2, I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Similarly, in 
1 Corinthians 1, Paul gave this instruction to the church at Corinth. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. There's this old saying, let's just agree to disagree. That's not a biblical perspective. It shouldn't be let's agree to disagree. It should be let's agree to study together. Let's agree to both submit our minds to the truthfulness of Scripture. And where we disagree, let's not let that cause what happened in Corinth. Divisions. I'm not suggesting that there are not good biblical reasons to leave a church. I'm not even suggesting there aren't preference reasons to leave a church. I'm really making the point that church hopping is really a recent development in church history. And I don't think it pleases the Lord. This morning we're going to talk briefly and high altitude and very quickly. We're going to go very fast about church membership. And this is going to be an old-fashioned Bible study. Less of a sermon and more of a kind of roll up your sleeves, oil up the spines of your Bible and get ready to flip around to see some, some perspective on church membership. Now, some may push back and say, well, there's no such thing as church membership in the Bible. I think church membership is equally as, is as equally taught in the Bible as is the Trinity. You won't find a verse that says the Trinity in the Bible, nor will you find a verse that says church membership in the Bible, but it is as implicitly explained as any other doctrine in Scripture. Ben Merkel says this, it's a paragraph that's worth reading. Church membership is needed to foster biblical accountability. Church members are called to obey, submit, and receive admonishment from their leaders. By refusing to commit to a local church, and a church membership is really just a commitment, by refusing to commit to a local church, needed accountability is lacking, and sheep often wander away from the fold, sometimes away from God himself, the good shepherd. Without accountability, Christians often dry up and spiritually and bear little fruit. That's why the author of Hebrews, we'll get to this in a few moments, said, let us be concerned, let us concern ourselves with with one another and how to promote love and good works. An unwillingness to join a local church is tantamount to saying we are not interested in divine accountability in our lives. Can I just read that again? That's penetrating. An unwillingness to join a local church is tantamount to saying we are uninterested, not interested in divine accountability in our lives. In addition, he says, church leaders are called to shepherd those who have been entrusted to them and therefore under their watchful care. Without some formal recognition and acknowledgement of those who are members, this process of shepherding becomes increasingly difficult. The best means of obeying the New Testament teaching on shepherding is through some kind of formal commitment or membership. A Christian's relationship to the local church should not be like a dating relationship where both sides are constantly guessing how the other views their relationship. Many Christians today want to date the church, making no formal commitment. The biblical picture of relationship with Christ, however, is not dating, but marriage. Therefore, it's appropriate that we have a formal commitment to Christ's visible church, end quote. Most of you, just by sheer percentages and numbers, have chosen to make membership a priority in your life here at Mission Road. This is not the the knife in the back, 
manipulative sermon that says you need to join next week. It is a biblical injunction to exhort you and admonish you and encourage you and beg with you. Find a church to which you can formally commit, i.e. membership, and wherever you are, be all there. I want us to take a deeper dive into our commitment that is before you in your hands there on our um, charge that we give new members, but it's good for those of us who are members to be reminded. Listen, church is not a place, it's not a building, and it's not a gathering. Church is a network of relationships that serve Christ together, that serve Christ's people together, and that serve Christ's purposes together. And there are responsibilities and expectations that the Lord gives those who would be committed to his visible local assembly called the local church. As we begin this, uh, this uh, membership, we're just going to kind of walk through what we do at the end. You've seen me ask a series of questions and the, uh, the candidates for membership say, I will. We're going to go through these. Uh, we start, start by saying to become a member at Mission Road Bible Church is to make commitments that are listed below that you have in, in front of you. The expectations for our members do not extend beyond the responsibilities that Scripture establishes for all believers. In other words, we don't make it harder to join our church than it is to go to heaven. We're not competing with God for higher standards, right? That would be uh, a little bit disingenuous. Well, you might be able to go to heaven, but we're, we're going to not let you fellowship and worship with us. So... The leading uh, statement there is with the aid of the Holy Spirit, very important qualifier, because of the aid and assistance, the illumination, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we ask a series of questions. Now, these series of questions are something that, that we, we, we talk through, that we, um, we uh, uh, describe with each other, we do in our membership class, and it also ought to be something that we circle back around and listen to and refresh ourselves with. More often than we do. Let's just say it that way. First question. I think there are 10 of them. I don't think yours are enumerated, but mine are. Number one, will you be diligent to exercise self-control so that my lifestyle exhibits both true Christian love and personal holiness? In Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, uh, the third commandment is, is one that people are, are very familiar with. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And typically we associate that with cussing or cursing. We say, well, if you take God's name in a vain way when you're cursing or cussing, that's what that commandment is about. That's certainly under the umbrella of that commandment, but this is the first and foremost place in the scripture where God outlines the fact that his lordship has, has ownership and consequences over the lives of those who follow him. When he says, uh, do not take, literally it's, it's the word nasai, it's carry. Do not carry the name of the Lord in a vain way. You know what he's saying? Don't say you belong to Yahweh, Israel. Don't tell people that you belong to the great covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, King, Yahweh of the Old Testament and not live like it. Well, that should sound like, now we start turning. Philippians chapter two, verse 12. So then, my beloved, 
just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I love this. That's your responsibility, my responsibility. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we talk about justification as monergistic. It's all God, mono. He's the only one who does it. Sanctification is synergistic. We add our ability and our wills to obey, but only God is the one who's going to do that through us. It's a mystery that cannot be solved. We cooperate with God in our own sanctification. And then he says this. Remember, this is right after the great passage exalting Christ's coming, the Lord Jesus coming into the world. Do all things without grumbling. I find it interesting, this is a whole other sermon by itself, that the first practical application of working out your salvation with fear and trembling has to do with complaining. Don't be a complainer. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that, here it is, you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights to the world. In other words, by becoming a member, you're, we're, we're, we're saying we want an accountability relationship with the people in this church that we can be held accountable to being lights in a dark world. When you make decisions morally, you're making a decision on whether or not you're going to represent Christ in an honoring way or a dishonoring way. You're also making a, a decision whether you'll represent your family in an honoring or dishonoring way. And you're representing this church in an honoring or a dishonoring way. That's not manip manipulative, it's just true. God forbid that anyone would ever be heard saying something like this. Well, you know so-and-so, they act in such and such a way that's wicked, sinful, not above reproach, and they go to that church down there on Mission Road. You carry our reputation as equally as you do the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this church is his body. They're symbiotic, almost one and the same. Second question. Will you take seriously your relationship to others in the body of Christ, striving to maintain unity, avoiding gossip, backbiting, anger, and doing all I can to stimulate love and good deeds in others as I seek to exercise my spiritual gifts and faithful service? In other words, will you not be part of a church split? <laughs> that's what that's saying. There are ways that God has given to work out differences in the church. Philippians 2, just while you're there, look back at verses 1 to 5. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy, Paul says, complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. How do you do that? You do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, your disposition toward others. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Look over at chapter four, verses one and two. We alluded to this earlier. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved children, with whom I long to see my joy, my crown, in this way I stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. 
it is impossible, let's be clear, it is impossible to have a local church without disagreements, without disunity, without arguments, without jealousy, without coveting, without frustration, without um, uh, backbiting anger, without questioning motives. It's impossible. And you know why? Because you're a part. And so am I. That's just who we are until we are perfected by Christ in glorification. The question is not if those things are gonna happen. The question is how do we resolve those things when they do And we have an entire New Testament that tells us how to resolve conflict, not only for for peace, but for the glory of Christ. Resolved conflict should always bring believers closer to one another as they draw closer to Christ together. Maintaining unity is important. I've said this over and over, especially in our elders' meetings. I, I am, I hope not naively, I am not concerned that the enemy of our church, the devil himself, would get much traction with false teaching or with bad doctrine. And the reason is, you know, Rod was here for 20 years. I've been here for eight. I've got, between the two of us, there's several thousand sermons online that you can listen to. It's getting us to change our belief would, would be a very difficult thing. I don't think that would be the way he'd try to get in the church. I think he would try to get in the church by causing us to be disunified, frustrated with one another, not resolving conflicts, not doing what Paul told Yodia and Syntyche to do, live in harmony. So we ask each other, do you take it seriously? Do you take it seriously to make things right? When you don't make things right with someone else, you end up typically gossiping and slandering that person. And when you're gossiping and slandering about a person, it's because you haven't sat down to try to make things right. Number three, will you consistently contribute as a good steward of God's blessings, such time, talent, money, and the measure God prospers you so that our local church and worldwide ministry of spreading the gospel may continue? This talks about time, talent, and money. We, we hinted at this last week. 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it, serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You are a steward of the gifts that God has given you. Whoever speaks, he says, do it as if it were the utterances of God. And whoever serves as the one who, by the strength which God supplies, glorifies God so that through everything we do, God is glorified in Christ. There are two categories of gifts, public speaking gifts and and private or non-public serving gifts. Nothing in this verse says that you can't have both or dimensions of both. But you've been given gifts that you are to steward for the betterment of Christ's body here and his glory. We also say money. This is always the hard thing for the pastor to talk about. I, I hope that I would never be accused of talking a lot about money. But the Bible does talk about money. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, Now I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is talking about the giving of of finances to Christ's local church. Each one must do so as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion. You don't do it because you have to. You don't do it to keep the lights on. You don't do it because you want to make sure that, that the pastor's wives can go to the grocery store, although that's a very good thing. 
You do it not because you have to. You do it because we love God. And then it says, God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything. I love that phrase. Always having all things sufficiently. That's profound. You may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. What's he saying? Paul is saying, God owns all of what we have. When we give back to him, we are showing him that we know that, we recognize that, and we're also showing them that we care about the advancement of his name and his glories through the ministry of the local churches that we're involved with. If you branch out the, um, the uh, uh, context here, this is a group of Corinthians in Macedonia who had collected money not only for their local church, they were actually sending it down to Jerusalem to take care of, of other believers because they were in a serious predicament of being persecuted, having turned from being Jews predominantly and now Christians. They were losing their jobs, their family associations, their, their standing in the synagogue, some starving to death. And so the, the church in Corinth takes up this, this offering and sends it to help them. And it says they did so hilariously. They loved doing it. Do you have a purpose and a plan for giving? Do you begin thinking about giving when the offering plate comes around? Have you talked to your wife, your husband, your family about what are the standards? When your sons and daughters get their first job, do you sit down with them and say, part of your priority for that check that you get every week is thinking about your stewardship before God? Are you teaching them to give to the church? It's an important and overlooked and I will admit easy to neglect doctrine we need to pay attention to. Number four, will you teach biblical truth to your family and acquaintances as God gives you the opportunity with a desire to see them come to trust Christ and be saved? This is discipleship. Deuteronomy 6 says that fathers are to be the centrifuge, the, the, the motivation, the fortress of discipleship in the family. We're teaching our, our, our families, our wives, our children. First Corinthians 14 says, if a woman has a question about a doctrinal issue, she should ask John Piper. No. She should ask her husband. Ladies, let me ask you to push and prod and goad those men that you have committed to and love so much. And when you have doctrinal questions, when you have quiet time questions, ask them. And men, when you don't know, it's okay to say, I don't know that, but I'm not gonna stay in this condition. I will know by next week. And then come and ask uh, Pastor Aaron and he will help you with all those <laughs> difficult questions. I'm being serious. Not about Aaron. Go to, go to my role. Um, or Adam or Bob. God has intended for the family unit to be a reflection of the church in that it is a self-teaching, self-healing discipleship cocoon of growth. Deuteronomy 6 says, when your sons ask you in time saying, 
What do the statutes mean, asking their father? You know what that means? That the, the, the word of God has been taught in the home to such extent that eventually they're going to say, why do we do this? Why don't we act like my friends do? Why does our family have different values than our neighbors do? Why are we doing this? Then we better have an answer. And this puts such a, an enormous an enormous responsibility, a God-given and should be God-welcomed responsibility on men to know our stuff. It's more than that, though. In the church, in Titus chapter 2, there are older men who are to, who are to disciple younger men, older women who are to disciple younger women. There's the, this, 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 this natural relationship where younger men and women, and except for maybe one or two exceptions, we're all younger than someone, Younger should seek the older, more mature, and say, help me grow. Pull me to where you are. And the older are to look at the younger and say, I want to help you. I'm going to confess, having a soft moment just two weeks ago, pulling through a Starbucks drive through And I looked through the window, and I saw two tables that had Four men, two at each table, sitting together, having what I know to have been discipleship discussions. And I got choked up in the drive-thru, saying, that's what's supposed to happen. It's not if, it's who. Who are you discipling? Who is discipling you? That's the point of this, this fourth commitment. We want desperately to Disciple. Remember, the Great Commission is not just evangelism, right? Going to all the world, make disciples, and teaching them and baptizing them. It's growth as well. It's not only the um, discipleship part, it's the evangelism dimension, though, as well. I'm so blessed and burdened to speak recently with two parents in our body who sat weeping because they were so burdened for their children to come to the Lord. I can share this story with you because I have permission. There was a time with one of our sons when my sovereignty of God and salvation, my Calvinism, if you will, went from theory to practice when I realized that my best sermons weren't converting him, my best conversations weren't converting him, my deepest discussions weren't converting him, my arguments, my, my, my winning, my grounding him, my discipline, nothing was winning his heart to the Lord. And finally, you just stop and say, God, you are the author of salvation. Please save my boy or he'll go to hell. I think every person believes intuitively in the sovereignty of God and salvation. That's why we pray for God to do something to bring them to himself. That's our desire in number four. Number five, will you endeavor to both give and receive admonition and instruction with meekness and in love and submit to the biblical process of restoration from sin and church discipline? We read that and everyone just hones in on that last statement, church discipline. We are a church that practices church discipline. Church discipline is in Matthew 18. Let me just outline that very quickly for you. But it's only excommunication at the very end. There are three restorative steps before the last. 
The first two steps ought to be happening naturally and organically in the church all the time, day in and day out. It ought to be happening in your marriage, with your children, with your friends, with your discipleship relationships, in your care groups. If someone is caught in a sin and it's known that there's sin, attitude, smallest attitude, biggest sin, everything in between, then you privately, personally go. You go. It's, it's, you should go and say, hey, listen, I, I don't know what's in your heart, but I see this. This doesn't honor Christ. What are you doing and how can I help you? How can I serve you to not be caught by this trespass? I love the, the, uh, the language of Galatians 6. If anyone's caught, tripped, tackled from behind in a trespass, how can I be your guard? How can I help you? You go privately, you go personally. You don't go to Twitter, you don't go to Facebook, you don't go to social media, you go privately to the person. If they don't listen, and by the way, there can be multiple of those steps. It doesn't have to be once and then you're into step two. You may go multiple times. Secondly, you take someone with you. And that's to affirm your graciousness in your, in your confrontation and the fact that the, the facts are straight and that two people now care. You, you've brought, turned up the volume, as it were, to help someone's heart. Run from sin and run to Christ. If they don't listen to the two or three, then you tell the elders, the church leadership. We pray about it and then we present it to the entire church body. To get them in trouble, no. To say basically cast the widest net. If they won't listen to the one or the two or three, maybe they'll listen to one of you. Let's all go to them privately, personally, corporately if we need to and beg them to run from that sin. And then after that, if they will, still will not repent, then we treat them as an unbeliever. Now there's two dimensions of that without getting into a whole sermon on that. Uh, first is, is you just, the church says, because they have the keys to the kingdom, it was in Matthew 16 that we didn't read, um, you, you can't be a member of the church. But we are going to continue reaching out to you as an unbeliever. The exception of that is Titus chapter three that says if you have a factious man who's causing trouble, 1 Corinthians five, the same thing, if someone's immoral and unrepentant, you get them away from the body, you protect the church from them and you ask them not to be around. Those are the, that's the nuclear option at the end. The first two, the first two, listen, the first two of those steps ought to be happening naturally and lovingly and graciously week in and week out, day in and day out, between all of us. And it's important, listen, to be on both sides of that. Sometimes I think it's easier to sit down with someone and say, look, I don't know what's in your heart, but, and you tell them. It's really hard when someone sits down with you and says, Rick, I don't know what's in your heart, but, that's hard. Have you, have you had that really good encounter where you get that, they say that and you get that sick feeling in your stomach? Like, oh no. I, I, and, and then this little voice begins to say, defend yourself, it's not true. What about you? And the, try to kick those voices out and just listen. What would our body be like if we gave and received admonition? You know what it'd be like? It would be holy and pure and more mature and growing. Number six, will you make your relationships in our local body your priority as you fulfill Christ's call to discipleship? Let me just say it as clearly as I can. Send the emails and I'll send them to Aaron. 
The focus of ministry and discipleship in your life, the focus of your teaching ministry, both giving and receiving, ought to primarily be your local church. Let me be vulnerable with you. Do you know what it's like for those of us as pastors to love, pray for, care for, um, uh, preach, study, bear this burden, and then the only time anyone ever says to you anything about instruction is, you know, I heard this, this series by MacArthur or Piper, and, and it was awesome. Great. Can I hear it too? I mean, <laughs> this is not uh, asking for accolades. What it is, is this is even pulpit, pulpit, it's not even pulpit directed. The people who teach and shepherd and care for you in this body ought to be your caregivers for your soul. Listen, I love listening to internet preachers and pastors and speakers. Love hearing them. They're part of my podcast. I, I, I'm not discouraging anyone from doing that. But those guys don't know and love my soul like the elders here do. Make the body of Christ where you're investing your spiritual input the most. 2 Timothy 2.2, five generations of, of discipleship. Paul says, I want you to, uh, tells Timothy to find faithful men who will train faithful men also. Jesus to Paul, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others also. Five generations. Those generations ought to be generated in our church. And again, Titus 2. Number seven, will you affirm the church's doctrinal statement? Remaining teachable where questions remain, avoiding the promotion of any doctrine contrary to our doctrinal statement. Let me just highly recommend that once it's online, you listen to uh, what Myrell did first hour today on this very issue. I know Adam's gonna be finishing up that uh, on our distinctives next week. There has to be a doctrinal wall around a local church. We have to believe something. Ephesians 4, verse 11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. I love the fact that the, the goal of pastoral teaching, of apostolic care is that we're unified in the faith. We believe the same doctrine, orthodoxy, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's just saying you're becoming mature. As a result, listen, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by the craftiness in evil, deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, here's your responsibility, listen, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. It's not just the leadership. All of us hold our unity and our doctrine together because you are a part of the joints, the connective tissue in Christ's body according to the power of each working individual part. If we're not all pulling our weight and having our ministry, then our church will be weaker. And that causes the growth of the whole body for the building up of itself in love. We have doctrinal priorities. Let, let me just say that there, there's, there's orthodox issues. Sometimes we call those first tier issues. And there's second and third tier issues. 
When it comes to church membership, we wanna make sure that we have the core first tier issues circled and believed in corporately. The gospel, what is the gospel? What does it mean to, to, to assess man's heart as sinful? What does it mean to see Christ as the only way, not an option? But we also, because of our, our local body, we have doctrinal distinctives that we, we uh, circle. Um, we talk about these as concentric circles. The biggest circle is the gospel itself and our, our belief in the authority of Scripture. And then inside that, you have issues like uh, cessationism or, or Calvinism or, or dispensational or covenantism. That these issues that are more doctrinally distinctive, but they don't mean that if someone believes something on the other side of that, that it's heresy, this damning doctrine that if you believe that, you will not go to heaven. That's why we have a doctrinal statement that's really, we, we use the word doctrinal statement, but it's really what we teach. And the reason it's called a what we teach doctrine, uh, a, a, doc, a what we teach document rather than a doctrinal statement is to ask everyone to believe everything in our doctrinal statement is an almost impossibility from a couple of perspectives. First of all, let's say if, if it's a new believer, they, they come to faith in Christ and they wanna join our church, they can't possibly uh, understand uh, pre-tribulational rapture and premillennialism versus amillennialism and uh, dispensationalism and covenantalism and uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. They just love Jesus and want to be a part of us. We want to grow with each other. Secondly, there are, there are people who have distinctives that are um, uh, in our church, but they've, they've made a commitment not to promote things that go against our what we teach statement. That's godly. That's Mature. The key is how we handle these issues. It's okay to have disagreements and unresolved questions as long as we're looking to Scripture together and asking them for answers, asking for answers. No one is asking for blind loyalty. We're asking to be good students of Scripture that can study together. Number eight, Will you commit to faithful attendance and sacrificial service when we gather corporately as the body of Christ? You say, you mean there's a commitment to come to church? Yes, there is. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how to love and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our assembling together. And this tells me that there was a problem in the early church. As is the habit of some, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. Even in the first generation of the church, there were people who didn't prioritize attendance. Why is attendance important? Well, let me say it from two angles. First of all, attendance is important because it's touch points and you get to know the body of Christ here. But it's also a launching point to follow up on relationships Throughout the week. It's why we have care groups. It's why we have discipleship relationships. It's our corporate touch point. It's also refreshing. We come in from the world. We take a deep breath of Holy Spirit air with each other and the word of God. We look at our sin. We, we thank God for his glorious forgiveness for it. It's kind of the recharge station for our week. And when you join our church, when you join a church don't be a Christmas and Easter only attender. Number nine, will you follow the leadership of your elders who have been charged by God to watch over your soul with loving care? This is Hebrews 7, 13, 7 and 13, 17. Um, one of the primary arguments for an official church membership is that 
the church leaders here, the elders at Mission Road, are going to give an account to Christ someday for someone. How do we identify who they give an account for? Is the people who aren't members who come once, twice, three times, five times a year, what's the threshold? And I think what's, what's being communicated there is there needs to be some reciprocated commitment between leadership and, and the body where you've identified each other as a part of the same flock, a part of the leadership structure, so that that can be the people to whom we give an account. And then lastly, will you commit to pray for the ministry here at Mission Road, your brothers and sisters in Christ and the lost who need a Savior? This is just Christianity 101. We want it to be a praying church. James 5, 16, if confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, the great Christian fraud is to hear a prayer request and do nothing about it. Typically under the guise of, oh, I'll pray for that. And then we don't. Ephesians 6.18, we come with all prayers and pray at all times. Ephesians 5, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we pray without ceasing. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. So, you look at this list, how you doing? If you were to put a, a numerical grade from one to 10 on each of these, how would you be doing? And where would you wanna dial in to say, I wanna make my ministry and my involvement more effective? 